What is up, Gorilla Social Workers? This is the Gorilla Social Work Podcast, your crackerjack clinical insurgents pitting evidence against anecdotes with your hosts, Jeff the Firehog Moore and yours faithfully, Mace Warren. Jeff and I are both forensic psychotherapists that specialize in the clinical treatment of those involved in the criminal justice system. We love sharing our misguided musings with all of you, and we thank you so much for your ongoing listenership. Today, we sit down to discuss the process of clarification and reunification for sex offenders. Reunification is the systematic restoration of a family who has been torn apart by incest or child sexual abuse. This process is completed for clients who have offended within their family as well as outside of their family. If you like what you hear, feel free to stop by the Five Star Ratings home and put food coloring in their iron. And now, on with the show. Oh yeah, I worked that time. You're working. Do you know what? You know what that reminds me of. Do you remember um, the poor picked on stage crew at? Uh, I I lost head. Am I off again? Oh no, you're good. You're good. Okay. What if I just do this right here? There we go. Do you remember the poor picked on stage crew at Ogden High School? Picked on by you? Those guys? No, no, no. Like. There was no such, I didn't like beat them up. That's no, I mean, there was, I don't remember there being one assembly that went off without a hitch. Like there was something that always went wrong. Like the noise, you know, the, the sound just went out or somebody be in the middle of a talent show performing a musical number and sandbag falls and kills someone. Well, no, no, <laughs> you don't remember the stage oh, crew course, just yeah. sucking and everybody's like, stage crew. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like, whoever's, whoever's sitting down in the front, like just gets picked on, you know, yeah. <laughs> when have you ever <laughs> like other than like, yeah, I like hissing. I'm going to bring hissing yeah. back, but have you ever been like legitimately compelled to say boo? Like, I mean, and mean it. No, in, it's, it's always silly, it's joking. silly sounding. I wonder where that boo. came. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> boo. Yeah. And, and everybody is just, when you hear people boo, it's kind of, it's easy to catch on, but I always want to do that. Uh, I can't help but think of the Princess Bride. Right, boo! <laughs> Every time. Boo! boo. Yeah, yeah. I, love, I love how the boo has an accent. Ew. And totally, ew. ew. <laughs> yeah. It's totally noticeable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, I think yeah. of Princess Bride. Yeah, but yeah, sure. like I, I, I uh, whenever these technical difficulties happen and this like, I, I, that's what I hate, I think more than anything is unexplained technical difficult like there's no reason <laughs> and also there's no explanation for what happened because how many like we were talking about this with our buddy john about that it department whatever that was right. and how many times is this just fixed by like turning it on and unplugging it counting to 10 and plugging it back in yeah, but i want somebody yeah, to yeah. explain what's happening yeah there. why is that the operative Right. Thing. First right. of all, how does it get to that point? Secondly, why does that fix it? And is there a way to avoid it? Because it seems so simple to just do that. But that that seems like magic almost. Sorcery, you know? Like, we don't have the answer to it. We just know it works. It's a big enough 
I guess, either problem or anomaly. It's not even an anomaly. Like South Park did a whole thing on it. Yeah. Remember? Three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah about the internet going yeah. out. Yeah. And then how did they fix it? Same thing. They found a big internet. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. I It just is. God, it's so annoying. I just IT issues, but that's anyway, same that, with vehicles for me, but it's because I'm not masculine. Oh yeah. yeah, I don't know how to work. There's so the many car. things about us that are like, I mean, you look at you look at us, and it almost appears like we know how to do dude stuff. It's and, a good and, front, and we don't. No, and the. I don't want grease on my hands. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't even want to learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when somebody's like, dude, changing oil so early, easy. I'm like, I don't care. I don't yeah, want to yeah. learn. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to learn how to do that. In the meantime, I'll just go on looking like a dude. Yeah. 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 That's funny. Yeah. Well, so, uh, this is kind of, I was thinking about this. This is kind of new. I mean, um, like pre pre presentation, huh? Yeah. You got a big, is I don't it? know if it's a big presentation, but bunch of people that know us and everything yeah yeah Yeah. damn well worth rehearsing yeah for sure well and we'll just kind of go through some finer points i guess we have to go through the whole thing um but yeah the how much do you do you get nervous for this at all uh i see you came prepared with a stack of papers i i don't feel nervous if i have my little security blanket in my hands (laughs) That's how, if, 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 if you took this from me, even though I know what I'm going to say, mm-hmm. I'd then feel naked. You know, you know what I've learned about that though, is like, I understand we like when you're writing it on paper, it sounds really good. And then I've just always found when you riff, it just goes so much better. Yeah, what, what I write does not translate to like speaking out loud. I know. I know. That's, yeah. it's so weird. Like there's some of these slides that I look at and I'm like, you know, I want to really, cause there's like research that I don't want to misquote. Cause obviously people put a lot of time and effort into that and, and I don't want to like skew their results or anything yeah. like that. So I'll take time to like really mention that one, but man, everything else, I just want to riff, you know, that's how yeah. I normally do my presentations. And then let's say like when I'm training and stuff, dude, I don't pick up that manual once. Wouldn't like, you say you kind of have more of the gift of gab than most though? I mean, I guess I, I I'm just, I, I get, most like if most people were gonna like riff, uh, it, it wouldn't flow. You know where I think it comes from is I'm not super comfortable with silence. Remember how they yeah. taught you in school like use silence to your advantage when you're doing therapy. I was, I've never liked that. Like I, I give it. I remember a, a therapist. I was well, what like what you know? Because I wanna, I, I wanna quantify it. You know, like and then operationalize that. I right. want to know. Cause you know, I don't like, you want an answer <clears throat> like with the internet going out. Well, I just don't like, yeah. And I don't like the looseness of it. Like, you know, um, whenever somebody's talking about vibes and connections and energies, I'm like, get out of my face. I don't right. want to hear that stuff. I want to, what, what's the operative, you know, silence to, to be effective and, and what's the purpose of it. Never got an explanation for what the purpose of it is, but and, you know, cause normally well, we you'll get an sit, answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sit in the moment. That's the word they use. What does that sit. mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, but they said a seven count. Okay. Why seven? I don't know. That's what you've heard. Yeah. Oh. Do you know how long That's a, the closest that, do you know how long a seven count is? Let's try it. That is, oh my God. That is painful. Okay. Could you ever no, imagine no. being silent and looking at your client for that long? No. 
That's terrible. And you kind of sped up at the end. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's gross. So, I mean, yeah, like, I, I'm I, not comfortable with that. I don't, I give it like a half count. <laughs> <laughs> like enough to take a breath. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I think that I, I'm just not comfortable with it. And so I just go and go and go. That's why I tell people don't, I will not turn to you for questions. You need to put your hand up and interrupt me. But, you know, the other thing too was it reminds me of, um, we were at a training one time and it just sucked, you know, cause normally here's the deal kids. Like when you go to, when you go to conferences, right. You'll start to be very disappointed in your profession, especially as a social worker, because more often than not, you know, what people are basing their attendance to a particular conference or not has nothing to do with the actual content of the conference so much as the food that you get during the breaks. That's the, that's the, yeah. It's the worst reason in the world. I mean, the worst reason in the world to go to a conference, right? And more often than not, like, and there's a difference between a conference and a training. So both give mm. you our continuing education units, but the ones that we really need, I, I recommend trainings, trainings because more often than not, I was, I was actually joking about this with, um, a kind of high profile attorney here in Utah, Ed Brass. We were talking yep. about this and we were talking, he just, had gone to a conference in Vegas and I was like, dude, don't you just think those are people telling you how cool they are? That's really all they, that's really all it is. People telling you how cool they are, which is kind of what we're doing. I was just going to say, but I mean like we're going to a conference well, part of it, but I feel like we're giving good info though. I think so. I think so. Like, okay, I, I think guess that'll be up to them. I, to decide. My, I, here's what I, here's my, here's my metric on whether or not it's useful is can you take what I've told you in, in this, in this presentation and apply it in a therapy session that same day. And if the answer is yes, then you've got something there. If I just talk to you about in abstract nonsense, then we've got a problem there. So I, that's where it just, it, it's kind of painstaking to, to do some of these sometimes I really dig trainings, but, and I like doing trainings too, but sometimes conferences are just not awesome. Well, that's why up until CBISO prior to that, my, my favorite training conferences that YHA one where yeah. it was just like stacks of interventions and right, tactics and right. tools. And and that's that's what I was saying. We went to one and I can't remember it just wasn't good and you and I weren't paying attention and like the the um Is it the one where that lady did the backflip? No. <laughs> that one was awesome. <laughs> Tragic but awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um no it was it was a guy. I can't remember who it was but I mean, he like inter he stopped his presentation to comment on how we were not paying attention, which I was kind of like, you need to get more entertaining than dude. <laughs> yeah, like that's not my problem. You're going to see it. Yeah. Would a comedian ever do that? Like ever, you know, I mean, if I'm interrupting their you guys set, seem bored. <laughs> yeah. Oh, am I boring everybody? My boo? Yeah. Like everybody. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> boo. boo. Yeah. All right. Well, so, uh, I, I, get, I did a little bit of a bait and switch though. The intro like references a lot of reunification, which we are talking about, yeah. but, um, but not, we're talking about one aspect of leading up to reunification. So you tell me, man, like, um, I, I don't know for the layman, what explain reunification for listeners who are paying attention to this. It's kind of a one size fits all catch all term for introducing, a client of ours, a perpetrator back in with in, into a family with people under the age of 18. And, um, and it's weird cause the same term is used if we're reintroducing the perpetrator back into a home where 
their charged victim resides, or if we're just moving them back into a home where just somebody under the age of 18 resides. And there's, yeah. so it's, you, it's kind of the, they use the same. You should term. push for a change in that. What do you think? What would you call it? Well, unification like, just sounds dumb. I know. So reunification sounds reunification makes sense for victims. Yeah. And it also has a nice ring to it, but unification sounds silly. Yeah. Makes me reminds they me of like together. UNICEF. I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what that is. And I don't like it. I, I don't know what a good term is, Yeah, but it's it. That's the idea. And yeah. so it's a, it's a process. It's the, it's probably the riskiest thing that we do. The riskiest decision that we as clinicians have to make is to undergo that. And so there's a lot of moving parts that, that go into it. And we're trying to, as a task force, we're, you know, trying to standardize it so mm-hmm. that whether a client goes to alpha counseling or, you know, circle treatment or, or wherever that we're all doing the same thing. Yeah. So they don't, so it's, they know what to expect. And yeah. if they go from place to place, it's pretty, and, and I think when you standardize it too, it, it, it collectively helps us identify potential shortcomings in it and then collectively fix that too. But yeah, and I guess the danger resides in the fact that, um, I mean, because this could involve, I mean, theoretically, an actual like direct victim that somebody has and reunifying them and reintegrating them back into the family or secondary victims like um, we refer to secondary victims as, you know, say the dad um, offended on somebody outside of the family, but the mom, the kids, they have to deal with the fact that he's out of the house now and in prison and then he comes back um, or just meeting ones for the first time. I remember I did one of these or I was asked to do one of these with a kid who hadn't been born yet. And I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. Like, <laughs> he's not, so I mean, and even when he was, even when he was born, then, then what? Like the kid, yeah, I know yeah, it was, it was yeah, really, have you done reunification? I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that, but it needs to unify with the world first. Yeah. That yeah. catch all terms kind of funny. So, so we are talking about though, the, um, the use of the sexual history polygraph in leading up to that. Um, and we've had our, our pal Ed on Ed cook from prime, prime polygraph, a couple times talking about the polygraph. So specifically the sexual history polygraph. So, um, so yeah, we should probably just jump into it. Huh? Let's do it. Okay, cool. So let me shift the gears on this guy right here. Oh, look how fancy that is. And then, uh, yeah. Just floated up out of the sky. I know. Right. Um, Jeff Moore and Mace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that better. Oh, look how fancy this is, dude. If you like when you compare it to your <laughs> leave me alone. Yeah, I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> so, OK, yeah. so that's pretty couple, awesome. I know. Right. Yeah. A couple things we're going to do is just review some polygraph research really quick. Uh, some noteworthy kind of cool court decisions that came up about this. And then Jeff is going to talk about strategies for using the sexual history polygraph and improving client outcomes. Truth be told, everybody, we're kind of using this as a dry run to work out the kinks. So, I mean, whatever. Yeah, whatever shortcomings we have on this, by all means, let us know. So one thing I want to ask on this is like our overall goal when we're working with sex offenders. Like, And um, my anticipation is that, you know, people are going to say no more victims, no more victims right? Mm-hmm. And just for listeners, the thing I want to clarify is the reason Jeff and I do the work that we do is not directly for no more victims. And the reason that is, I, I mean, it's not that we want more victims. <laughs> That's of course we want no more victims, 
However, our client is our client, the person sitting in the room with us, right? And so um, our objective is to help that person reintegrate into the community and lead a productive life. That's it. Which the side effect of is no No more victims. victims. So it kind of does two things, but our central focus is on that. I mean, if you start to externalize what your focus is in treatment, you're going to have some problems there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in any any type of treatment. And, And like I've always said, if you don't, Jive with that very well, then don't work with this population. Real simple. So some of the, I guess, more noteworthy research. um, So this is from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. This is worthwhile to know. So this is basically saying that... um, at year end 2008, this was uh, back then. And if you know anything about research, you know, it always comes out way later because they have to peer review it and do all the rest of it. This said that more than 165,000 offenders convicted of rape or sexual assault, assault were in state prisons. Okay. And um, the National Parole Resource, this guy right here, says that of those 165,000, 95% of these offenders will ultimately be released to the communities. And that's at a rate of 10 to 20,000 per year. So the reason that's important is because the idea of just lock them up, throw away the key, it's not going to be an effective solution to this problem, right? We, we have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, they're coming back into the community. And although you might not like that, it is the reality, right? And, and, and if, and if, they weren't, then you and I would just work with a different population. We're just recognizing this is a population that really high stakes, really challenging. That's why we dig it, you know? So it's not as exactly. if we, yeah. Okay. The other one here is that, um, oh, we already went on that one. Okay. So this means um, more than 861,000 registered sex offenders currently reside in communities in the United States. That was in 2017. So it's probably a little bit more now. And so while it's kind of difficult to track national trends over time, there's very little question on the number of sex offenders under correctional supervision in the community. That's increased substantially over the past 20 years. Um, And the sex offender management laws, they've become so prominent in the United States that um, the issue was identified as the fifth most important area of concern for state legislators. So wow. imagine that state legislators have all these things, whether it's like not just for like criminal justice stuff, like fifth overall most important. Right. Wow. You know, so you look at the, the United States most important thing. I think they talk about like the economy, obviously, and, yeah. you know, uh, the war, whatever, you know, whatever's happening. And then the fifth number five is that's sex offender laws, sex offender management laws. I mean, I guess that shouldn't surprise me too much, but it still seems like, I don't know. I guess that is surprising. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, and, and that's reflected yeah. in, um, this was in, uh, 2007, 2008 legislative by NAM. There was 1500 bills related to sex offenders introduced in 44 States. Um, and there was the six states just didn't have any 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 legislative sessions during that time frame, and those were two hundred and seventy five of those bills were passed. That's a lot of laws associated with with sex offenders, and the reason why that's impo- why we mention all that is everybody believes that the type of work that we do is vital. Otherwise, why would they be paying so much attention to it, right? So it's not just like. They may disagree with them returning to the community, but there's tons of attention to it. Everybody understands the stakes are really high and it's important. So my appeal to treatment providers is you need to take this seriously, like more seriously. I mean, I guess you should take all all treatment decisions 
you know, seriously with whatever population we're working with. But this, the stakes seem much higher with this population, don't you think? Especially when it comes to reunification. I mean, that's, it's the riskiest population and then the riskiest thing, decision that we make as providers. Right, right. So um, one thing I was going to ask was, you know, who, who, you know, thinks the polygraph is useful. I assume a lot of people do. Um, and, you know, when we go through this, we, we try to tell them that, uh, the purpose of the treatment, uh, the purpose of sexual history polygraph is really, um, to, uh, kind of like help with treatment planning and also help bolster community supervision. And one of the things that kind of go through this is that most states are going to have some form of specialized supervision to manage this. So Utah does this as well. They have teams that are assigned to it. I think the caseload is, 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 uh, lower, but they're also seeing them more frequently than other folks that are on parole or probation. It's just kind of higher stakes at that point. And 85% of offenders referred for sex offender, uh, 85% of offenders are referred to sex offender specific counseling. So most of the offenders who have offended have to go through treatment. Um, but this was kind of crazy to me. I was, it looked at like saying that less than 10% are required to to do polygraph testing. That's in the entire country. Now that's required to do it. That doesn't mean they don't do it. They're just less than 10% are required. Now in Utah, we require them to do it. Um, and one thing that they, hmm. they went over this was the, they kind of did a really large scale systematic review. This was 291 studies over a 40 year period. And one of the things they said on this was, there's no research to support for intensive supervision without a rehabilitative treatment approach. And why that's important is because I think we're really grateful that we have such an integrative model that we work with APMP so closely and everybody's going towards the same thing. So not only do we have support from specialized caseloads, we do require the polygraph and we have the sex offender task force that oversees the work that we do. I mean, we're really mm-hmm. ahead of the game with a lot of that stuff. So, um, so when it comes to like this containment approach, uh, we use this kind of as a comprehensive treatment pr- strategy. And the assumption is that there's going to be information that's disclosed on a polygraph that we can then use to indiv- individualize our treatment plans, right? So when you're developing a treatment plan with a client, I mean, I don't know, typically, is it collaborative or you just set the set the stage or how does it usually go? It's collaborative within a framework. Mm-hmm. There's some... There's parameters that we have to work within, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a conversation I have with the client. Right. So it's not like they, it, cause a lot of our clients are like, okay, what do you want to work on? They're like, well, I'd rather be done. It was like, okay. Guess we're done. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what, one thing I, I mean, when you're doing collaboration, you have to be realistic and clients can have an opinion <clears throat> on these things, but you're still going to make the best recommendations given the information you have and providing a clinical opinion. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Clients can't just say, I don't know, for treatment, I'd, I think I'd just rather home stay home and watch Netflix. That's what I need. Like, man, that sounds good. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, so not entirely collaborative. Well, I mean, I guess it's not completely uh, client-centered, I should say. No, it's not client. It's, it's client-driven to the degree that it makes sense um, within them speak. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is some negotiation that goes into yeah. this within certain, yeah, framework. So um, as far as research goes on polygraphs, there's been a ton of different, uh, you know, multiple research studies that it does lead to additional disclosures, which is good. So um, if it didn't lead to additional disclosures, the question would be, why are we doing it? Right. And 
the results of those um, indicate number of sanctions and 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 changes in case plan for offenders, right. meaning that you know that it helps with indicating that somebody's off the beaten path and that we do need to change their case plans. And then lastly, is uh, at least on this on this slide, is that um, you know when they demonstrate th- th- those who are subjected to polygraph testing demonstrate lower levels of recidivism. Wow. So that should be something that's, that's right. That should be something that is taken into account to say, well, yeah, why, why is it not required everywhere? Right. If, if, if it's lowering recidivism, we should always do it. Right. Yeah. But there's like a whole tangent. I want to go off on that, but I'll yeah. save it for another day. That's, <laughs> right. a, that's yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, on this, when it comes to offenders, most of the offenders surveyed, this is in 1998. Now, this is a survey, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. They believed that the polygraph, um, this is probation and parole officers, they believed that the polygraph led to better supervision of the offenders. In other words, they knew where to kind of allocate their time better based on the results of some of the polygraphs. And there's some limited research, but 72% of the offenders that were surveyed rated the polygraph as helpful. Right, and eleven percent said it was harmful. Hmm. So I don't know what the other percentage because that don't, that doesn't add even, up, does it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones are like no comment. I'm no rocket surgeon, right? But, yeah. but I mean, like, um, I, you know, I, so I think about think about it like this. Um, it's not the same thing, but it, it reminds me of the movie um, Liar Liar with Jim Carrey, right? And in that. Pretty simple premise of the movie is, you know, his kid, it's, it's weird. Made a wish. Yeah, he makes a wish and all of a sudden he can't lie. But like once he realized that, he realized he legitimately had to change his behaviors. Because if he can't lie, which is a very useful tool, we should all know, right? Um, if you can't lie, you have to modify your behavior. Because if you know that you have to be honest about what you're going to do, well, then you're not going to want to do that, right? You're not going to want to have to disclose those things. It's a good take on that movie. Right. So that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so right. if you were that, if you have, if you commit to honesty in a lot of cases and really stick with it, you're going to modify your behavior because you're not going to want to have the conversation of being, you know, of being honest. It, it probably stings way more than trying to lie and get away with it. He had to actually be there for his son. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now the scope of a, of a sexual history polygraph is much more limited so than everything, you know, but nevertheless though, um, I think that plays into some of their decisions, some of our clients that they have to limit their decisions in terms of what they're doing. And then, you know, I think ideally what we like to see there is they start to see their life improve. And as a result of that, they're like, oh yeah, I should just keep doing this, this stuff, like, you know, because I'm not getting in trouble. I have more freedoms. I have more freedom of movement and be able to do things that I want to do rather than having to skate around this all the time. Kind of funny how sometimes they think they're free because they're committing crimes and stuff, but really, you know, they got a target on their back a lot of the times. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people will say, um, you know what? Polygraph is BS. It's, not it's yeah, it's not admissible in court. Okay. Um, go back and listen to our original podcast with Ed about polygraphs. He talks about the admissibility and, um, I'm going to give you the cliff notes version of what it is, but essentially the, the ruling on that, the precedent, the judicial precedent that was set on that was you had an actual polygraph and that was compared to, um, and this is where it gets kind of, cause there was a guy who wrote a book called the lie detector and he had 
what was called a, uh, what was it called? Like a blood pressure test or something like that. I don't remember. All it was, was a blood pressure cuff. And that's how he measured whether or not you're being dishonest. Absolute nonsense, right? But somehow that got conflated with an actual polygraph. And this had to do with a murder. And at that point, the judge in that case said that those tests were inadmissible with one exception. And that exception is, you know, does, can the state overrule that and make kind of a a law that they are, or do both parties agree on that? But to me, that's never made sense. Cause like if I'm the prosecution and that guy passes the polygraph, I don't want it to come into, into the court. Right. So why would I agree to that? And and likewise, the defense attorney would want it. But if I'm the prosecution and he fails, I want that to come into court. Mm-hmm. But then, so the defense and prosecution, last time I checked, they just want to win. They're never going to agree on that stuff, right? So when it comes to testing validity, there was uh, 57 studies. This is the National Research Council um, on polygraph lie detection said that uh, – Specific incident polygraph testing with sex offenders found that such testing demonstrated the ability to discriminate between truth and deception at a at a rate well above chance. And if you think compare that to like I don't know eyewitness testimony, <laughs> which last time I checked is it's garbage, terrible. yeah, or like hair and fiber evidence. I've heard just, that. So yeah, hair it's not as big a deal as unless unless there's like DNA there. Like, I mean, what are you going to, what like are you going to hair? hair uh, yeah. I, I just recently learned that. Yeah. That hair's not. Yeah. Yeah. Look it, at, I mean, just Google it. Like how, how helpful is that yeah. in the case? But it's, it's compelling to juries. A lot of the times I've heard that about dentition. Even I thought, I thought that was like, a Oh, really accurate. like the bite yeah. thing. Oh yeah. Like super inaccurate. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, but still, I mean, you look at statistically what's more valid and the polygraph beats all those things. And for whatever reason, it just isn't accepted because of this stupid case back then. Somebody's saying challenge like it. well above chance too, because yeah. apparently our opinion on whether or not our client's going to reoffend is about as good as chance. Yeah. I mean, clin- clinicians, you, yeah. and it's, we're not like actually, I'm better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're not actually flipping coins and deciding what we are doing is they're just saying we're wrong 50% of the time because we have a stake in our clients and we, you know, which is, it's fine. I think that's okay. You know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So the, so summary on all this, as far as the research, research suggests that polygraph testing increases offender disclosure across multiple offending or behavior categories including historical, current offending, and high-risk behaviors. And the empirical evidence also suggests that the polygraph testing can help reduce sexual recidivism when it's used in conjunction with specialized supervision treatment within the containment approach. So, in other words, we should be using the polygraph if used appropriately. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty conclusive. Yeah. Now, there are some court cases that are important, especially for Utah, but also federally, right? So... So when you think about like, um, I don't know, when you think about mental health professionals versus physical health professionals, like what would you say are, let's just focus on mental health. What do you think is the most common malpractice claims that come against us? What would you say they are? Uh, It's going to be either confidentiality or like what, sleeping with clients? Yeah, and and if you think about medical professionals, what do you think their number one is? Uh, like 
like malpractice, like like uh, killing your <laughs> like wrong wrongful diagnosis or something, okay. wrongful treatment. Okay, so those are my guesses. Number one, oh, okay, <clears throat> or number five rather yeah. is is well, this is back. Well, this is number five. Yeah. Okay, number five is sexual misconduct. Oh, okay. So that's fifth fifth down. All right, on mental health professionals, and you and I, I mean, we we don't have. I don't think we need to get into it here, but it's crazy what we've seen with clinicians I know. and what they've done with clients and nothing happens to them. Nothing professionally. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess if you're doing a malpractice claim, that's a little bit easier, but somebody doing this and then just bringing it to the attention of licensing boards and stuff like that. Sky's the limit. Apparently like <laughs> it's been weird. Right. But yeah. medical professionals, Number five for them is misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis. Okay. And that, and that could have some pretty significant implications there. Both of my guesses were the fifth one. Right. Mm. So number four, lack of informed consent. And then number four for medical professionals is failure to treat. So for those of you who don't know what lack of informed consent is, is like, um, clients should know the, uh, I guess the type of treatment that they're receiving and why, why you believe as the clinician, it's in their best interest. Okay. So like if I'm explaining our treatment model, right, <laughs> this is what I love to like, what kind of therapist are you? And somebody's, I'm an eclectic therapist. Right. Okay. So nothing. Okay. Explain eclectic therapy and how it's going to help a client. I don't know if you can. You know, you say eh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Take a hey, holistic hey, 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 hey. Approach. Yeah. Holistic. I don't even know what you mean. Yeah. Holistic approach. Um, <laughs> they say holistic because it, it covers the whole person. I'm That's like, what that wrong. You know, those words are yeah, completely yeah, yeah, different, yeah. right? <laughs> holistic. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Once. Yeah. Not to mention one starts with a W and yeah, the other yeah, one starts yeah, yeah. with an H <laughs> anyway. But they, yeah. um. Uh, and they are, they mean different things, but, um, lack of informed consent is when I don't give them enough information to them intelligently consenting to the treatment that I'm going to give them. Okay. So like if a client asks me what type of treatment you do, I'm going to say, we do cognitive behavioral therapy. How's that going to help me? Let me tell you, I'm not going to ask them. They're not even going to ask me. I'm just going to tell them and they're going to know full well the type of treatment that we do. I do that in the first session every time with them, right? And then we continue from there. And we have it plugged into our orientation packet. Exactly. Yeah. And then the second thing is, is and, and and you have to, the other thing that people miss sometimes is that you have to be able to discern with a high degree of confidence that they understand, right? So if you just give somebody something that says, CBT and explains it. And they're just like, you know, they yeah. sign it and give it to you. Like, you know, full well that they didn't really understand what they were getting into. Okay. Um, same thing goes for the polygraph. Like they deserve an explanation as to why we're administering this. And more often than not, they're not told why this is. Like, hey, fill this out, you know, and they get a packet mm-hmm. and they say, Hey, do this. They have no clue what the rationale is. They have no reason why they're doing it other than that. They might get in trouble for not doing it. Right. So, Lack of informed consent is huge. We see that a lot in behavioral health. Number three is breaches of confidentiality. And then number three on medical professionals is prescription drug errors. Okay, so breach confidentiality, pretty straightforward to understand. Two is boundary violation. And then hmm. uh, two on this one is surgical procedural oh, errors. Yeah, that was, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, number one is altered client records. And childbirth injuries. So that's the number one. Correct. Altered client records. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So childbirth injuries. 
Um, yeah, it seems, man, to this day, I just do not know. Like it is like, I'm sure you like went to the hospital after people have had their baby, right? Okay. Plenty of times. Mm-hmm. I am still to this day fascinated that we are alive because it never, it seems like chaos. Oh, like how, like the actual process through which people appear on earth. Right. Yeah. Dude. And, dude, and, and like, wild. yeah. And, and we're really, I feel like pretty medically advanced and dude, like it's, it's a mess all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, seems like it chaos. never goes like it should. Yeah. Just pure. And then think about back in the day, dude. Like how many kids and parents died, you know, just given birth. Oh man. That's what I'm saying. I don't even know how yeah. we're alive, but yeah. still, and then altered client records. Number one. So, I mean, look at those, like, look about, think about the differences, like between those two things. What are some big differences? Oh, you see there? Well, I mean, they're entirely different. Uh, <clears throat> the mental health has a lot to more, more to do with, I guess, relationship, like sexual misconduct, but like all those things have to do with kind of interactions between <clears throat> the, the client and the therapist, mm-hmm. almost all of those. Well, yeah. And look, so if you look at the big difference I noticed on that was if you look at mental health professionals versus medical professionals, everything on the medical professional size side looks like it's associated with a procedure or, uh, or something that they, that is part of their clinical, right? What they do. Whereas nothing on our end has with, with has anything to do with application of actual clinical experience, right? Everything on this side has to do with application, like what they're actually doing, applying their practice. Ours is just nonsense, like just misbehavior and shitty paperwork. That's, that's what ours has to do with. Right. Yeah. So interesting. What what I, why I think that's important and why I put this slide in here was because to actually prove that uh, that a mental health professional has violated like their their clinical application in terms of what they're doing is a really high bar, and the reason why is because so few places, like so few agencies, do like evidence based practice that is done to fidelity and monitored, right? Whereas in the medical field, dude, they record everything that they do. There's multiple people in the room watching what a doctor does at all times. You know, there's just so many eyes on it that if they mess up procedurally, they're screwed. You know, where behavioral health, you shut that door and then you're sitting in the room with a client and the magic, you know, quote unquote, that happens in there. Not a whole lot of people get to see that. Right. Right. Whereas with doctors, they're pretty transparent about stuff. Right. Now, the reason why that's important for clinicians is you need to take it seriously. That that's not a, that's not now a permission slip to be an idiot behind closed doors. Like you have to realize that if there's no oversight, you have to be your own watchdog in a lot of cases. You know what I mean? That's why I appreciate that when we do fidelity stuff, like it's helpful. It's helpful. Like I like that sex offender task force started to sit in on our groups. I'm like, oh, awesome. Great. I get to put on a show. That's great. You know what I mean? I like it when there's visitors. Cause transparency. Well, more so procedure. I like getting affirmation because I think I do good work. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me good job. Yeah. yeah. So this is where this, this came down to a problem because there was a few cases, um, and this was one in Utah specifically. So this was a case called Bennett versus Bigelow. Um, and so there was a, uh, this client was given, um, Mr. Bennett, he was given a uh, a sexual contact form. It's pretty standard when they're doing their sexual uh, history polygraph. We give them a form that guides them through how to set this up, right? And um, he 
did not receive informed consent. He didn't get any informed consent about this. And meaning that, so like, I don't know, what are, what are our limitations on confidentiality? Like if a client tells us what do we have to report things that break their confidentiality? Well, I mean, it's little different for us because we have another higher level than most clinicians. Like just initially, um, if like anybody in the field harmed a self or others or, you know, disclosing child abuse and those types of things, and there's more to it than that, but those enact our reporting requirements. But for us, forensic social work, uh, we also are talking with adult probation and parole about, uh, probation violations mm-hmm. or parole violations. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little more right. than the standard reporting requirements. And that, and that also would come with basically like permission, right? So if, and the client would have to give us permission to disclose those things. So the, those are the reasons why we can violate confidentiality is, are you an imminent threat to yourself or others? Meaning that, that I, I believe you're a threat to yourself, but you're also not willing to accept my help. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, and then has there been reported, you know, uh, child or any protected populations like development Elder. delayed elderly abuse. And then last is, have you given me permission to do so? That's, those are the ones. And so clients give us permission to violate their confidentiality with, with, uh, adult probation and parole. If they report a, a violation, we report that. Right. Right. But, the thing is, is when you're asking for this information, a client, hopefully some of you understand that we're asking historically, a client comes in with one offense and that's what, that's what their conviction is, but they likely will have undetected victims, like victims who haven't come to light of law enforcement, right? But if you disclose those, a lot of them, there's no statute of limitations on what they've done. So there's a risk that they're now going to be charged with new you know, new offenses. Now, whether this leaves a bad taste in your mouth or not, the reality is, is we're not doing our clients much good by getting them charged with new offenses that are undetected. You know what I mean? And so sometimes people look at that as like, well, you should report those things. I'm like, okay, well, again, you you shouldn't work with this population then. Someone can report those things. Just Correct. Our, our job as therapists isn't <clears throat> isn't detective. It's not that's that's not what we do. Well, right. And yeah. and for any therapist who's doing this, if your client starts, to, you need to inform them ahead of time that if you start to tell me certain things, you know, I you need to know that I am going to report this to law enforcement. You need to know that ahead of time. And and I'd say. The therapist, look, if they're starting to get close to that, you need to stop them and remind them I do that. that what they're about to do, you're going to have to report that, right? That's right. important for them to know. Yep. So there was no informed consent in this case. Um, I wasn't there, so I'm basing this off case law, but this is what it said. And Mr. Bennett was compelled to provide incriminating evidence, um, which he didn't do, by the way. He refused to do that. And as a result of that, um, he was... He was um, unsuccessfully discharged from treatment and sent back to prison. And then he sued on this. And then this went to the Utah Supreme court. And basically what they said, um, was that, um, the, the therapist didn't warn him about their duty to report and disclosure. And he was required to participate in polygraph testing and invoked his fifth amendment, right? Because answering the questions would lead to unwanted, you know, unwanted uh, disclosure and, and, you know, potentially getting new charges. And uh, they said, nope, 
uh, you can't do that. So they ruled in his favor. Okay. And then there's another one, United States versus what is that? Von Baron. Yeah. Von Baron. Looks yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. And this was, now the stakes on this one were a little bit higher because this was, this was in the uh, 10th circuit court. So this was a federal case, right? Same thing. Um, the, the program asked, you know, any admissions for illegal behavior to law enforcement, so on and so forth. And they determined that the polygraph cannot be used, um, to ask questions that have the tendency to incriminate themselves. Right. And they, and so at this point, the polygraph, and this was in 2016, came up for potentially being banned by the feds altogether, right? And when that happened, um, Frank Davis, who's one of the guys who works pretty closely with us, he's a federal probation officer, um, he had mentioned, hey, you know, you we need to go talk to one of the judges. And the way that you guys do this, and I, I don't know, how did we fall into this? Like, was it just dumb luck or I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly. I how. know we wanted to reference their fifth amendment rights and we did, but I don't know if we knew that this was going to be a bigger deal than it needed to be. Right. Right. Yeah. So, just, I mean, basically fifth amendment just says you cannot be compelled to testify against yourself. You can't be to- And therapists kind of do this because clients are under the impression that, the therapist client relationship is sacred, which it is by the way. However, you know, under certain circumstances that we've already discussed, we have to disclose those things. And so if the, if the therapist otherwise leverages that relationship or the client believes that they can disclose these things without it, you know, incriminating themselves, they're wrong. And we have to tell them ahead of time, Hey, here's how it is, right? They can't tell themselves on this. So the question becomes like, well, how the hell are we supposed to do sexual history polygraphs then? I mean, they're literally disclosing undetected victims at this point, right? Right. And so um, do you remember this when we went and talked to Judge Newfer? It was pretty wild that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I thought it was, I didn't notice, I didn't know, I didn't think about the importance of it at the time. I you know? know. I was like, oh yeah. This More there's people to go, go this talk is, to this yeah, judge. This is what we yeah. do. Yeah. So Judge Newfer at the time, his chamber. Yeah, yeah. We, he's the chief judge for the United States. This is from uh, 2014, 2018, and we were called in there 2017, and we presented our version of this. And uh, that format has since been accepted and standardized for the entire United States. Our format was the one that I mean, I don't. It's weird because I, I don't think you could ever go anywhere because it's not like I, I mean. We, we didn't make it up or anything. We just kind of codified it in a way that was not violating their Fifth Amendment rights. Right. And we had his his clerk and attorney and the judge say, yep, this will do. We're like, oh, OK, cool. Like and then they and then that way it didn't go anywhere. But that could have had serious implications because I think Frank's concern was like, you know, 85 percent of the other supervising officers were was, hey, this is a really valuable tool. And if federally it becomes banned, that's going to trickle down to the states. Right. But I don't know. Have you ever got a thank you card for doing that? <laughs> Didn't come in my. I don't even think anybody books. knows. And even if you tell them, they're going to be. Yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it didn't. Uh, it is kind of crazy. Like what it ended up, I guess, becoming. Yeah, uh, yeah, at for the, sure. At the time, it was just like, hey, let's go talk to this judge. And if that's our claim to fame, like that's on your gravestone, I don't know. It's you not a very good life. You haven't done much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so this is our, our basic format. Um, and the way that we do this is we say, you know, relationship to you 
Are they related, unrelated, or a stranger? Jeff's going to talk about that here in a minute, why that's important. Also, was the victim either a male or a female? We also want to know their age at the time. Uh-oh. Dude, that's a cardinal sin. I normally don't even have my phone on. Turn the turn it off. Turn the should, whole podcast off. Start over. Should we answer it and see who's calling? <laughs> we don't want to answer that number. Um, so we asked their age at the time. Um, and we don't give age like a number. We give age ranges. Infant, prepubescent, adolescent, and adult. We want to know their age at the time whether a juvenile or adult, there's a reason why it's only those two. And then we want to know the number of times. Was it one time, rarely, occasionally, or frequently? Again, not requesting a number, just kind of a a, a range at this point, okay? Um, one thing we encourage to is don't use polygraph results to score static risk assessments, but then uh, we don't need to get into what risk assessments really mean. But risk assessments are essentially like we're trying to... Um, not necessarily predict, but help fall, help categorize clients based on the presence or absence of risk factors to the likelihood that they're going to reoffend in the future, which helps us target certain things in terms of dynamic risk. Now, in dynamic risk, when we link that with our dynamic risk assessment, we're developing our treatment plans based off of that. And that's helpful for tracking progress, but also, you know, tracking, uh, also developing the treatment plans. And one of the, it gives a bunch of different things to pay attention to, but one of the things it says to pay attention to is polygraph testing. So polygraph testing and the results of it can be applied to dynamic risk assessment, right? So this is where you come in here under the sexual history polygraph preparation. Yeah, right. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is taking, you know, what what you've applied and talked about, especially like with the informed consent, the rationale behind it. And uh, then figuring out a way to like, I I want clinicians to have some take home information as to how to uh, set one of these things up and for the clients to come out in one piece and not end up getting charged. And so it's a, we're talking like strategy here Mm -hmm. and um Cause there's a lot of variability in what goes down from point A to point B. You know, if like point A is a client steps in the door, shakes your hand, Hey, welcome to Acme treatment. <laughs> and point B is they're sitting in the, the polygrapher's chair. Like I've seen a lot of variability over the years in terms of how much preparation the therapist gives the client. Right. You like know, everybody does it differently. Everybody does it differently. Yeah, exactly. And so like, <clears throat> I want to, I'm going to give some strategies on how to introduce this to clients. It's going to help you as a clinician, uh, be more effective at your job. And again, it's going to give you the most results, uh, that's needed and give the, the, and, and still protect the client. Mm-hmm. But like, first off, in order for like a lot of what I have to say to make sense, I think we need to actually like step into our client's shoes for a minute and kind of see things from their perspective and just what we're asking them to do. Right. So like, first off, we're, we're asking them, so we're strangers to them. We're asking them to come into the office and tell us what your sexual offense was. Tell us the thing that you're probably most ashamed of the worst moment of your life. And I want you to tell me all about it. And on top of that, (laughs) on top of that, I want you to tell me everything and everybody you've ever had sex with, like your entire sexual history. I want to know all of it. And I, I even want to know the stuff, like the thing that you're self-conscious about that no one knows about yeah. the 
the sexual stuff you, you keep secret, the, you know, the thing that like when you're in your room by yourself, <laughs> you actually like look over your shoulder to make sure your cat's not even looking. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you want to know that in the bathroom with a locked door. Yeah. yeah. You look left to right. <laughs> Still make sure no one's looking <laughs> to make sure there's not a ghost yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> make sure there's no, so like, and, and then it's like, okay, we got all that information. Now you're going to go talk to another person you've never met. You're going to pay him hundreds of dollars. And you're yeah. going to sit in a chair and you get it, get it hooked up to the straps and levers and gauges and all kinds of different things. And yeah. we're going to make sure you're telling the truth. And if you don't pass, it's going to make uh, that we're going to have to do it all over again. And, and by the way, if you fail, I can't predict other people's response to this. They may freak out and you might get in a lot of trouble and I don't have a whole lot of control over that. I mean, can you imagine if that's how life was? Like if you knew, if you knew when you met a person for the first time, like you're going on a date with a nice lady or whatever, you know, or guy, whatever your cup of tea is. And you go up to him and you, and you introduce yourself, but immediately following the introduction, you have to tell him the worst thing you've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, nobody, in, nobody has ever done that in the history of everybody, you know, except here. Like, and, uh, right. And so in other words, recognize what we're asking these dudes to do. Right. Yeah. And so like, again, some strategy, some preparation, some maybe over explaining some reassurance. And then there's just some things that I'm going to show that like work within that, uh, the, that little sexual history packet, some little strategies that, um, ease the client's mind, gets them to open up, gets them to feel more comfortable and mm-hmm. gives you more juice for the squeeze. Yeah. And so it like, again, client, even if you explain all that, uh, clients are still going to enter with like a skeptical mind. And so I I've tried to sell them on the idea that it's like a safety planning tool, at, but there's like kind of like a three pronged approach. Yeah. You know, um, there's the legal rationale behind doing it the way that we do it. And you just went over that all, all the, I mean, I'm not going to repeat what you said, but all the, no, no, start over again. Let's go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> all right. So judge Newford. Yeah. <laughs> all the fifth amendment stuff. I, I reinforce that probably every time I meet with the client and yeah. talk about it. And I, I, by the way, I start this conversation real early in treatment. I, I don't like say, Hey, next week you're doing this. I, I, they, I, they know for months before they get into it. Yeah. I, I talk about the clinical efficacy angle in that like, all right, we're going to be talking about some things that are super awkward, but maybe some things that have caused problems for you in your life, mm-hmm. things that you don't want to talk about, but hey, you've got to do it. Rip the bandaid off quick. This, this helps us address some things that maybe you kept to yourself and more on that later. And then the, the moral angle. So clients actually seem to buy into this. I, uh, when I, when I say that, you know, there's some people that, you know, we're going to be having them move home and whoever they picked up their sex offense with might not be one of the kids that they're moving in with. But the thing is that maybe, maybe their kid is a uncharged victim and we don't want to just introduce a perpetrator in with an uncharged victim without any, any safety planning, any modification. It's that's bad for everybody. So we can't make exceptions for you. We've got to do it for everybody. You understand that, right? right? And and clients actually seem to buy into that. They get the big yeah. picture. You know, you know how I look at it too, is I, th- I think about, um, I think about like, uh, I don't know if you had to, do you think like the general public's trust of sex offenders is very high? No. Okay. So now, you know, in the world of substance use, there's an objective measure that is often looked at as like the holy grail. Clean time. Uh, 
clean time, which is measured by the last time that they use drugs up until now. Right. But what, but what's the, what is the instrument or process through which they measure that objectively? Uh, well, I don't know. A urinalysis. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I give a urinalysis and there's either drugs detected or there's not. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, I think rightly so now it, it, it too, too emphasized on as being the, like I often, criticize that as being the only metric that anybody gives a shit about, you know, I'm like, just, I agree with you. Dude, not, just make a yeah. machine that, you know, somebody pisses into and, uh, you know, if they're clean, you print off a sticker yeah. <laughs> or something. And if they're not, then, uh, yeah, <laughs> then it zaps them and takes them to jail or something. Um, but, uh, I mean, and clients kind of get wrapped up in this too, but how useful is that? Because, I mean, clean time. Well, yeah, no, no. I mean like evidence, oh. evidence oh, yeah, that I'm maintaining my, my, I'm maintaining my sobriety. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody believes that substance users are also lying, but then you could say, no, here's my evidence. Right. I, I think to clients, a good pitch to them is dude, this is about as close as it gets as an objective measure that you're telling the truth about some of these things. Dude, when you put it that way, I, actually, uh, one of my client's wife, uh, just did not trust him didn't you know understandably fractured the trust with his offense went to prison for a long time Mm -hmm. she she was just certain that there was more to the story and actually going through and passing the polygraph did a lot to like calm her fears about that and give her some like outside verification because his word was shit at that point right right okay all right so I'm just kind of given the bird's eye view or the helicopter view of the sexual history. And then I'll zero in on some of these things uh, individually. But, you know, first off, the main thing to keep these folks safe from incrimination is we teach them to list all their sexual contacts using an identifier. And again, more, more on that in the in a, a future slide. But basically, we want them to use a pseudonym for their sexual contacts. Uh, we have them. uh Again, they, they're listing their entire sexual history, not just their victims, everybody they've had sexual contact with. And we have them uh, kind of have it. We have like page A, and that's all the people they've had sex with younger than, than them. And then page B, which is all the people that have been the same age or older than them at the time. And that 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 can be useful, you know, in addition to, you know, obviously, if we're looking for like, you know, finding sorting out the victims from a standard sexual context that can be useful, but also it's, it's been helpful for me to see trends and patterns in my client's sexuality. I just, as an aside, I had a guy that he was an elderly gentleman, retirement age. And, uh, his, his victims were like, you know, like uh, teenage boys had a few victims and, uh, but most of his sexual contacts were just on the other side of 18. So even at his retirement age, he was, he was, uh, I think paying for sex at times with, you know, 20, 21 year olds. And, and look, I'm not going to get into like what to do with that information. Most clinicians can maybe recognize that having a discussion with an elderly client about his sexual attraction being to young men and kind of drifting dangerously close to the, the wrong side of 18 could be useful piece of clinical discussion. Um, also we, we want to talk about, uh, like while we're going through these uh, sexual contacts, it gives us a good chance as clinicians to sort out consensual sexual contacts from non-consensual mm-hmm. sexual contacts. And that, that might seem obvious, like, you know, that the clients end up in treatment because they violated consent 
most often, at least in my experience, it's an age related violation of, of consent. You know, of course there's the like force and things that are pretty obvious, but I've, I've noticed that as I go through, uh, a sexual history, you know, contact by contact, there's times where what the client thinks is a consensual sexual contact does not end up being one. And mm-hmm. I had a client, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. He, he, uh, was living in Vegas for a while and he, he had a, uh, he would talk like pretty braggadociously about this, uh, this, uh, girlfriend of his that they would have wild sex, um, you know, real sexual swashbuckler, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he would, he was telling me like, yeah, you know, and she was wild. She was down for anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, uh, she had, we'd get really drunk. She'd pass out drunk. I'd have sex with her. And I'd tell her the next day and we'd laugh and laugh. I was like, say, say what now? And, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, again, he, 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 I had to point out to him that like, yo, dude, like that, that's, that's not consent. It's like, nah, dog is the early nineties. Yeah. Partying. He, and that's the thing is like, he was saying, no, she would laugh about it. She thought it was funny. Yeah. And like, okay, that may be, but th- 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 you're not going to be that lucky with, right. Uh, future sexual partners. The person who's so, sleeping is not consenting to the sexual. Yes. Okay. Yes. He yeah. did not realize that. And yeah. I would have known that if not going through his sexual history, right. Partner by partner. Right. Uh, should the client list their perpetrator on their sexual history? Like, so short answer is yes. Um, it's a, it's a sexual contact. And when a client's sitting in the, the chair getting polygraphed, <laughs> is that the word? Um, having a polygraph administered, the, receiving a polygraph yeah, receiving a polygraph examination. examination. Yeah, there you go. Um, you don't want them to have any ambiguity. Like, damn, should I have talked about what happened to me? Look, yes, have them do it. But the I've had clients that they want to somehow demarcate their the perp- the the victimization they went through differently than their other sexual contacts. Okay, great, whatever. You know, give them that latitude. What, however, they need to write it down differently. Great. It it also. Like what I'll do is I'll kind of bookmark that. And, you know, later on in treatment, once we've made it past this uh, sexual history, we'll address the client's victimization if, if it's in our client's best interest. And because there's a lot of times where that just would never make it to the light of day. But mm-hmm. a client yesterday, I was going through a sexual history with them. Actually, that was today. It'll be yesterday, tomorrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going through a sexual history with them. And. He, he had, you know, he was abused and I was the only person he'd ever told. And if not for this examination, I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't, it, it wouldn't get addressed. So again, trauma reform informed response is uh, needed. Also, this might be anecdotal, but I've had enough clients that, you know, maybe they were sexually abused. Have you had this? So like a client, they'll be like sexually abused at age seven or eight or uh-huh. something. And yeah. then without connecting the dots, they'll go on to victimize people about the same age range at which they were abused. Yeah. And again, I don't know what the research says about that. It's just a trend that I've noticed. Uh, uh, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've had my, fi- my favorite is just the lack of insight as to, as to what's like, um, particularly if I had, um, a client, you know, a male client who perceived, the sexual assault that was done onto them is a good thing. And I'm, what I'm referencing is like an older female, um, you know, maybe sexually assaulting them when yeah. they're like 12 or 13. Right. And they're, so they're, I, I mean, just picture that, that 
I have a client telling me, oh yeah, I hooked up with a lady that, you know, she's down the street and but it didn't affect me at all. And I'm like, you're in prison in my sex offender group right now. You're saying that didn't affect you didn't at all. Not connect the dots. A lot of times they don't connect the dots. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I understand you have fond memories of that, which is fine. Yeah. You can have fond memories of that. Um, however, like how that changed your view of sex and sexuality and how that manifested behaviorally, that's a different story. Bro, I think a lot of clients have a very conventional view of what uh like victim impact is right. I think of somebody scared, you know, you know, in the corner crying themselves to sleep and dealing with like terror. Right. They're not recognizing what you're talking about. Right. But yeah. And again, if not for this procedure, a lot of that doesn't come to light. Right. And in terms of like the research on this again, um, the, Wait, you wanted me to go well, back? I had one more piece on there. Yeah. It's important. Oh yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, I didn't see important. that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. No, you're good. So sometimes Clients will, especially if they've, you know, had a promiscuous history or maybe they had sexual contacts from a long time ago, mm-hmm. they're not sure how many sexual contacts they've had. And again, when, when they're taking the polygraph, you don't want that ambiguity in their head. You want them to be pretty clear or at least clear enough that they've talked to you and processed it. So, you know, if they've had a number of one night stands and just, uh, you know, kind of not long standing relationships, and in their mind, they're feeling like, I don't know, like 15, 20, 25, I don't even know. We, we're not going to find an exact number, but if we can help them narrow it down, you know, like, like Mace, if you were my client, so I'm and, client. Okay. yeah, yeah. All right. And you're, you're telling me like 15, 20, 25. She, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Tell him, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I might, so I'm going to start with a, it was a the nineties. It was the nineties, bro. Everything's the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start with a low range. Say. Could it be more? Uh, it could it be any less than fifteen? Uh, no, couldn't be less than fifteen. Not less than fifteen. No way. Okay. No way. Could could it be? Well, let's go. Could it be less than twenty? Um, no, couldn't be less than twenty. Right, let's keep at it moving. least twenty. Okay, at least twenty. At le- so bottom end is twenty. At least, yeah. Okay, okay, at least good. All right, could it be more than twenty five? Oh, yeah. Could be more than 25. Could be more than 30. Could be. It could be more than 30. Could be more than 30. Could it be more than 35? Mm, That's no, I don't think it'd be more than 35. I mean, that's I'd say even 30 is kind of pushing it, but 30 is pushing it, but definitely not more than 35. Okay. so would you feel safe if we said that no less than 20, no more than 35? Yeah, that f- I feel safe with that. Okay. And that, so that's, that's how we'd do it. We'd walk them through and na- now they have a range. Now they can feel some level of confidence that they've discussed it with you, the therapist. And they're, they're not going to be like, oh, wait, was it 30? I don't know. Was it 35, 40? You don't want them doing that mental math in their head. Right. When they're in, taking the polygraph. In previous ones that I've seen it at, at once an actual number, which you don't want them second guessing that because technically like they're looking at that as a potential dishonest answer. Because yeah. if they say 27, but they're like, well, shit, it could be 28. Now you, 
that's literally you being dis- like knowing that you you're going into that yes, being dishonest, yeah, right? You don't want them doing that. So this is sometimes like when I think about this, like uh, it, it reminds me of something like that they ask because they're like, well, what if I don't remember? I'm like, well, don't give that thing more credibility than it deserves. <laughs> it's a psychic it's, network. Yeah, it's not a mind reader, dude. Right. Like it can't be. It, so the only way you're going to fail is by having knowledge in your head that what you're saying is not true. Like you would be the only one to know that, right? But if you give a what you're saying that that puts him in a category where he's like, well, I can't give an exact exact answer, but I'm going to give you a good faith answer. And it was between 25 and 30 or 20 and 20 and 35. And that's true. You know what the exact number is. I don't necessarily know, but it is true. And I believe it's true between 20 and 35. And I can still feel good about it as a therapist, because ultimately in the, the polygraph is going to determine if you are intentionally leaving something out. Right. And so if we've had that discussion, then we're our bases are covered. Right. And the reason why we do that in terms of like research wise and why this is important, this is all going back all the way to 1911 that, uh, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Okay. And so that if they do have, um, there was a medical meta analysis on this that reviewed literature and indicates having prior sex offenses is predictive factor for sexual recidivism, which makes sense. I mean, I suppose we're all capable of it. Um, but those who have done it are more capable than those who haven't done Certainly. it. Real simple, real simple premise there. Okay. So now on identifiers. So again, identifiers, you know, a pseudonym, a way that the the client can report their sexual contacts. And again, not just victims. They they can list real names for their consensual sexual contacts if they want. It's just, we we're giving them the latitude to use pseudonyms. And again, this is another chance to remind them of their fifth amendment, right? To not self-incriminate. And, but we want to have effective identifiers. And so what I mean by that is that it obscures the actual identity. I mean, that's probably the most important thing to make it effective. It, it, it can't clue me into who it might be. And it can easily distinguish the client from other contacts. And just a quick example on that. I, I had a guy that he he was kind of an organized system type of dude. And on page A, the sexual context for everybody younger, he listed them as like, you know, Y for younger, Y1, Y2, Y3 in order of having contact. And then all the people that were older than him, O1, O2, O3, again, in order of when he had sexual contact with them. And so like, it's not well, a very structured routine way, but when I ask him like, tell me about Y4 again, it feels, wait, what was, okay, let's see. And he had to go through his head and think, wait, who was Y4? <laughs> it didn't, it didn't come to mind. So it, it, the, he's like, oh yeah, Betty. Yeah. 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 He, he didn't have it on the top of his head like that. And so, um, the, we, we want it to be distinguishable. And this is where things get a little dicey with uh, dignity. So um, we, again, you want, you want the, you want both the client and the therapist to be able to understand who we're talking about. And so if they, again, if it's like a consensual sexual contact and it's like, Oh yeah, I don't remember her name. It was some girl at Joey's party. You know what? That's a description. It's not going to violate their fifth amendment. Right. And now we both know that, okay, the girl at Joey's party was, Appeared to be in her twenties. You guys both hooked up. Never saw her again. So when you okay. say dignity, that's different than saying I don't know some bitch at Joey's party. Right. Okay. okay. Yes. All right. right. And, and that's the thing is like therapist discretion. Like some people are going to have a greater toleration for nicknames versus uh, you know like they're appropriate versus inappropriate or ways of looking at things. Because look, we're telling the client, don't give me an actual name. Right. And but I want you to 
come up with a way to identify them right. in a way that we both know who we're talking about. And so I don't put much of a cap on how the client, I guess, gives the, the their sexual contacts names. At first, at least, because what it does is if I give them that assignment, tell me, you know, who you've had sex with. Yeah. Um, it gives me an indication as of the client's sexual yeah. attitudes. Like, how do they think about sex? Mm-hmm. What's their relationship to their sexual partners? How do they conceptualize this? And it's actually pretty telling sometimes the way that they nickname their partners. And I, again, I had a guy that he had a, a giant sexual history mm-hmm. basically and mostly consensual he basically could have brought in a phone book it was like that just lots of people and one in one of the one of the pseudonyms one of the identifiers really caught my eye and you'll understand why in a second um i was asking him about these two dudes that he listed on his sexual history mm-hmm. consensual but he, he said he goes like yeah you know what for a while there, I was going to these like methamphetamine fueled swinger sex dungeon parties, you know, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. When in Rome. Yeah. When in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, it's like a regular thing. Like he he'd hooked up with these same dudes more than once. And the interesting thing was, is that because <clears throat> again, the pseudonyms caught my eye. He didn't know their names, mm-hmm. but he had sex with them. Yeah. That he didn't know their names, but he had sex with them multiple times. <clears throat> the identifiers he used, and this is where the dignity piece comes in. He, he nicknamed them Kilbasa and Little Smokey. <laughs> that was how he identified them. Yeah. And so like for me, it's like, oh, if that had been a victim, I, me and I'm going to have a talk about keep it classy duty. Like it, that's disrespectful. Yeah. But ultimately I'm not putting a cap on it because if I, if I give rules to the client, I miss an opportunity to understand the relationship my client has with sex and sexual partners and yeah. how he sees them. Yeah. Well, you know what I always say? <clears throat> What's a, bird, that? a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You know? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I, yeah. Dude, I love all these stupid things that yeah. people say. Like the yeah. one I, I've been harping on most that more recently than ever, and it's used completely incorrectly, is mm. this is chess, not checkers. I'm like, yeah. God. <laughs> Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. yeah. Define, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Explain your metaphor, bro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude, I, I hate it. You're just saying something you heard. I know. Yeah. It's so silly. Yeah. So one thing we do target, too, when we're asking about these and, and you know, strategically you'll kind of discuss this is unrelated and stranger victims. And the research on this indicates that offenders. So so it used to be that you would you would, it would just ask the relationship. Right. And I remember this happened with one, one of my clients and I actually had to call and, and violate his confidentiality. And the reason why was. Because um, so at the time he was in a halfway house and his supervisor who took him out on visits was his sister and he only had one sister. Okay. And I had done the disclosure with her and went through all the supervision stuff and had her sign stuff. So I knew who she was. I knew her name, everything about her. And I knew she was taking him on weekly outings. Right. And then on his sexual history, he identified, and this is like when we started to change things too. Cause I'm like, damn, he like it may, his relationship, he identified as sister. And he used to, when he was younger and she was younger, he used to sneak into her room while she was sleeping and fondle her while she was sleeping. Right. And then I had to sit now, had he just, so we try to stay away from that. Remember we target, are they related, meaning a blood relation? Are they unrelated, meaning you knew them and they were in your life, but you didn't have any, you know, blood relation to them? Or they were a stranger, meaning that you had sexual contact within within 24 hours of meeting them, right? That takes away from the potential for what happened with that. I don't have to identify the actual relationship because that tends to lean towards incrimination. And what we do know research-wise is the 
offenders who offend only against family members recidivate at a lower rate compared to those who have victims outside of their immediate family, which seems weird, but we, we, uh, another podcast, basically, you know, it's like when you, when somebody is murdered, you look at who his family members are, right? It's a matter of like, there's a lot to go into going out and doing something to a stranger. There's more steps cognitively to be able to do that to a stranger versus somebody that you actually know and already have a connection with. Right. And also research shows that having a stranger victim is related to sexual recidivism. So if you are assaulting a stranger, like the prototypical, like dude who jumps out of the bush and rapes somebody, right. Doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, that person's much more likely to reoffend in the future. So that's why we target this in terms of the relationship to sexual contacts. Right. And so again, when I'm introducing this to clients, I once again, reassure them that it's, this is a fifth amendment friendly way of doing it. I do this a lot. And so if it seems like I'm being redundant, when I keep bringing this up, that's by design that the client can't hear it enough, let them know. And, and again, uh, you just mentioned the reason that it's clinically valuable. It, you know, it, it helps us. I mean, that's, that's, how we score risk. And I, I know we're not saying you don't use the polygraph to score static risk, right. but that, that's maybe the best way for us to conceptualize relation. Because if we're doing safety planning and reunification, those variables related, unrelated stranger are going to influence and impact the way we do safety planning. And so th- that approach, I put it finesses the balance of confidentiality, clinical efficacy and risk management. And so uh, sometimes we hit a stalemate. I, we had a client come into the program that had child pornography charges and that's what his referring offense was. Uh And we started the sexual history process and he, he had hands on uncharged victim unbeknownst to uh, the, the, the law. And again, we had him use this format and one of his uncharged victims was related. Now, he was trying to go through the reunification process and move home. Mm-hmm. And there were, he, he had underage related males, both in his immediate family, the home he is going to be reunifying with, and also indirectly mm-hmm. uh, outside, outside the family or outside the immediate family. And he was not willing to disclose the identifying information, understandably. And the, you know, kind of a collaborative decision with probation is that they weren't wanting to move forward on taking the chance. Right. And so basically what we had to do, like we didn't approve reunification for this guy because of the chances of of putting this guy back in with an uncharged victim without any treatment or mitigation. So what, what, like during the entire time he was in treatment, he just like, we did not approve reunification, but what we did is we tried to make him the safest version of himself that he could possibly Mm -hmm. be. And we tried to prepare again, did some family therapy, just like, Hey, here's how to help this guy kind of some, here's what to look for type thing. And, and just kind of conceded that, you know, one day when this guy is off paper, I mean, he's going to move in with who he's going to move in with. Right. There's nothing to stop him. <clears throat> that There's point. nothing to stop yeah. him. Yeah. So it, we were at a stalemate during the treatment process, but we just took that opportunity to really sharpen up his protective factors and, mm-hmm. you know, ready him as much as possible. And again, some psychoeducation is important. Uh, again, just going over sexual history with a client recently, he had um, listed his victim as unrelated, but in talking to him, 
he had uh, met her online and hooked up with her that same day. Yeah. And, and in his mind, he goes like, well, she wasn't a stranger. And by his rationale, she wasn't a stranger, but I had like, it's like, okay, well for, here's how we're defining stranger. And then I kind of had to get him to come along with the idea. Well, what if I feel like I've known her my whole life? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had a connection. Yeah. She's my soulmate. Brother. Yeah. So a little, a little, it, it, it's important to kind of yeah. run this down to your clients is what I'm saying. The the way we divide these related, unrelated stranger. Yeah. So this is also a kind of one that always hits a hot button for some reason, like male versus female victims. And so the research shows that offenders who have offended on males recidivate at a higher rate compared to those who have uh, female victims or who do not have male victims rather. Um, and the, so the, the obvious question is, well, what if they're gay? Right. That doesn't, that doesn't factor into this. So like, it, I, I know it seems like it should, it, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying if you had a male victim, regardless of your sexual orientation, you, the, those offenders offended at a higher rate. Okay? Right. And, and I mean, and, and it's, and this is on data that they actually reoffended after they had already been caught for a, a sex offense. They recidivated if they had more likely. So it's just one of those that cannot be, you know, under underestimated. So it is this important is what the research shows. Right. Right. We're so going has nothing to do with gay or anything like that. It's just saying, if you had a male victim, um, you're more likely to recidivate. You know, the, interesting thing about that is well okay obviously it it uh it influences safety planning you know uh victim profile isn't the end-all be-all of reunification and risk management it's a it's a variable though it's a mm-hmm. factor goes into it you know if we know the the sex or the gender of the victim um and we know that this guy had either indiscriminate or you know i guess focused uh attraction or his offense patterning it helps us a bit with reunification again it's 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 good to use the able as collateral data it's i like to see that what the client um what measures of sexual interest they show arousal to that it makes some semblance of sense with who they got in trouble for uh victimizing as well as what their self-professed sexual um interests are and but like kind of coming back around uh to the having male victims is correlated with measures of sexual deviance and is seen as an indication of increased sexual deviance. It depends on perception, intent and perception matter. In other words, if a, if a male client has sex with a male, believing that that male is a female, maybe, maybe that person was presenting as a female or dressed Mm -hmm. like one, or, you know, otherwise looked like one said they were one. If, if their assumption, our client, if our client's assumption is that this is a female and you wouldn't score the item, it's like, they have to know I'm offending on a male. I have to know that this is a male yeah. that I'm, that I'm offending on. And that, that's what I guess, uh, trips that, uh, risk factor. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when we talk about deviant sexual interests, what we're really talking about, so, so we're not talking about like, you know, uh, it's a hot button word, isn't it? Well, I think a lot of people think that when you, it has to involve like anything that deviates from what normal sexuality. I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, like missionary position only. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're talking about uh, sexual interest in children and sexual interest in violence or both. And when I talk about violence, it meaning that you are aroused to the idea of violence being involved in the sexual, the sexual activity. Right. And what they, what they um, have discovered on the research is that 
deviant sexual interest, particularly sexual interest in children, was found to be the variable most related to subsequent sexual reoffending in a recent meta-analysis. Um, and the presence of deviant sexual arousal has also been listed as high risk factor for adult male sex offenders in actual risk prediction tools, so on and so forth. So something that we shouldn't just poo-poo and you know shove under there. That, that's something that's really important. Yeah, so... The when it comes to the age of victims, so this goes back to what you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. with like not wanting to <clears throat> be too specific on any one variable that could, in the presence of other variables, lead us to have to report on a client. Because right. I remember they talked about that. Like if you gave a specific age, you could, I mean, I math. guess like a crafty investigator could start doing math and right. figure it out, right? I mean, yeah. they can count. It's like, a, yeah, okay. This uncharged victim, we know that it's, you know, especially if it's like they give up relationships, right? It's like, okay, I know that it was a related person and they were seven years old at the time of the offense. Well, I I just met this girl during a family session. She's 13 now. The age works out. Damn, right. that might be the uncharged right. victim. Right. So rather than getting into age, so look, I mean, age, age is important in that it uh, might inform the legality of the sexual contact. It, you know, and, and, you know, we, I've had some clients where we have that weird debate, like, you know, you were 18, she was 16. Is that legal? I don't know, like kind of the back and forth there, but, but by and large, what we want to know is like their sexual development level. And so, you know, the, the plethysmograph and the ABLE assessment both have like, I guess variations of, you know, infant prepubescent pubescent or slash adolescent yeah. and adult. And when it comes to safety planning, and uh, understanding uh, arousal patterns, that's, I guess, more useful to me than the specific age, knowing the, the sexual development of the sexual contact. And it again, it, it uh, helps keep the client safe from self-incrimination. And again, this is something I, once again, as I'm explaining it to the client, mm-hmm. I reinforce to them. And it's, a, it's a constant reassurance that if they... If they, because the, the clients are scared, they're going to fail the polygraph. And we say, if you follow this recipe, do it this way. Yeah. And so it's, it, it is a constant reassurance. And I always keep telling them about their, you know, the fifth amendment and all those things. Yeah. Well, it's always good to remind them about that. Yeah. And even their age factors into this too. And so this is important because, um, uh, the rates of almost all crimes decrease as people age. I don't know if they just lose the uppity in their step or the mojo, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what it is. Sex offending does not appear to be an exception. Uh, most studies have found that older <clears throat> sex offenders are lower risk to reoffend than younger sex offenders. So this, this is important when it comes to the age of the perpetrator when, when the offense occurred. Right. Yeah. And, like with the, you know, with the age of the victim, we have them, we have the client delineate by sexual developmental level. When it's age of the perpetrator, we're just wanting to know them juvenile or adult. Mm-hmm. And again, relevant because your, your client might have a lot of adolescent, you know, teenage sexual contacts. But if, if you're able to quickly see that, oh, and you were a juvenile at the time as well, that tells a much different story than if they've checked that adult box and they have sexual contact with a bunch of adolescents. And so, yeah, it does help identify possible lifelong patterns of perpetration potentially. And I, so it says uncovered juvenile sex offense history, not often made available. So 
a lot of times pre-sentence investigation writers are able to nail it. They're able to access that information, but like sometimes it's just weirdly unavailable. Cause I, I've had clients that will say, no, yeah, I, I committed a sex offense when I was a youngster and you know, it doesn't show up on their PSI. And weirdly enough, like actually within like the last month had a, client give one of our therapists a hard time saying like, I'm not telling you my juvenile record that's legally sealed. And we had to explain to the client, like, well, look, that's like legal. If something's legally, so that's, that's different than what we're doing here. You can, you can talk about thing. If you follow this recipe, you can talk about your juvenile sex offense history. It's not recharging you with anything, but it, I, I need that information right. to be an effective therapist. Right. Right. You can't just go with it's sealed and that's right. It. Yeah. Right. The, but the, the, the client, he thought he had his dead to rights. Like I'm not talking about it. it's legally sealed. Like <laughs> I legally don't care. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, oh, I'm a legal beagle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, wait, what? <laughs> good point. Yeah. Uh, so sexual preoccupation, basically like inability to kind of control your sexual thoughts and then length of victimization also is very important. Um, they, the actual risk prediction says that, uh, you know, there's a there's a pretty good relationship between sexual recidivism and sexual preoccupation, as well as um, the number of previous sexual offenses is highly related to later sexual offenses. So these are both things that we want to try to target and get some information on when we do the polygraph. All right. <clears throat> so, again. Uh, when we when we're asking them the frequency of sexual contact, again, it's for each sexual contact, not just victims. We want to know did it occur one time, rarely, often, or you know, regularly, or however we have it broken down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, again, it, it, this helps us, especially when it comes to victims. It helps us see the scope of the abuse. You know, is, did this happen once? Was it a a long, enduring abuse process? Um, and then as far as like casual sex and indiscriminate sex, it's not that we're moralizing these guys on if they have a plethora of one night stands. But if we see that, you know, a lot of these sexual contacts, it's been a real brief fling of sorts that might tell us as therapists something about impulsivity or preoccupation sexual preoccupation. And again, that's not the end all be all when it comes to safety planning, but it's, again, it's one more variable for us to consider that maybe we have somebody that's a bit impulsive on our hands, mm -hmm. somebody that is highly motivated by sexual gratification. And that as a therapist, that might influence the approach I take with safety planning. Well, I think, I think just from a pragmatic standpoint, like if you look at that and just say, Okay, um, the more the more sexual partners I add to my pool of sexual partners, the, the more I increase the likelihood of something going wrong, right? I mean, you know, so I, I, I would assume most one night stands, for example, you know, meeting somebody and having sex with them within 24 hours. I would I don't know what the statistics are. I assume most of them and just fine. I'm sure. Right. Uh, you look at each other, you think each other attractive and you say, okay, I, I mean, you don't know much, anything about this person. You don't know anything about them. Um, and other than that, they're a vehicle, an attractive vehicle for sexual gratification. Right. And you step into an incredibly vulnerable position with them. I mean, think about that. Is there any more vulnerable position with other than being with a stranger in the dark with your clothes off, right? Like when you put it that way. Yeah. But it's really vulnerable yeah, yeah. at that point. And like I said, even then most of them just turn out. Okay. Right. They're just, they just, they enjoy their time and then they part ways and never talk to each other again. Fine. 
However, the the likelihood of something going wrong, that being a criminal, that being a setup, that person not wanting to, you know, I mean, never mind STDs and unwanted pregnancies, just Risky, like, man. right. You, do, you don't know who this person is and what they're capable of. And the more people you add to that pool, you're increasing the likelihood that something could go wrong. And just like laying that out for a client says, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't do some of those things. Right. Because they never thought about that before. They were like, this is cool. It's a hookup. Eh, I mean, and I'm not saying morally you got to make whatever decision you want. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with two people being attracted to each other and having right. sex. I'm not saying morally that's wrong. I'm saying there are side effects to that behavior that could cause negative consequences to come into your life that you need to be aware of. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, last one on here too, uh, is, Oh wait, this is our last one. Close. Home stretch, son. Um, diversity in sexual assault behaviors. So, Adult males with more paraphilias were more likely to have sub- subsequent charges for sexual assault. And that includes the presence of multiple sex offense types as an indicator of greater risk. In other words, like if I had child pornography and I solicited a minor over the Internet and I had an offense against a male and I had an offense against females, all of those, you're with every diversity, the more likely you're going to do something else in the future. Right. Right. Um, <sighs> So we separate out the charged and uncharged victims from the rest of the sexual contacts and do more of a detailed breakdown as to what actually happened with anybody that we're considering a victim, again, whether charged or uncharged. And, you know, that that allows us to, again, see patterns of behavior, to engage in safety planning, to, uh, I guess, help the client see the patterns themselves and it's a, uh, so like the relevant information is we want to know what the actual sexual behaviors are, like what actually happened, you know, most degree of, you know, like, was it like fondling full on penetration? Uh, we want to know the duration of the abuse. And then as far as like the, the client's MO that, that it, it's our job to kind of collaboratively talk with the client and find out what the buildup was, what was going through their mind at the time, uh, you know, what, how did they choose their victim? How did they get the victim to go along with it? How did they cover it up afterwards? Um, did it, did it continually? If so, how just like that whole bit we want to know. And pro- like, for me, this is just me personally. This is, uh, I, it, I've, I've always really liked the, the method for uncovering this, that, um, the, the researcher author Finkelhor proposed and you just like that name i I do i love it uh it's in the for those of you that have worked with juveniles it's the it's in the pathways book somewhere in the back i I just like the way that he proposed it he says there's between a sexual abuse perpetrator and a sexual abuse victim there's four barriers that the perpetrator must traverse in order to create a sexual victim and the, the first barrier is motivation so you get to understand with your client okay what made you want to do it do that to this particular victim. What was the motivation? Um, uh, they, they have to please their conscience. They have to smash that Jiminy cricket by rationalizing to themselves or telling themselves that it's okay. They have to overcome their conscience. Third barrier is they have to account for the environment. They had to find some way to externally keep from being discovered, to isolate the victim, to find some way of getting away with it. And then the last and final barrier is how did they actually overcome the victim's resistance through coercion, force, grooming, 
manipulation, whatever it is. And so I, 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 I teach my clients that it's a handy way. Clients seem to dig it because it makes sense to them, you know, four barriers, people like this. And it, uh, it, it helps me get, get some good answers on specifically what happened with both the charged and the uncharged victims. And again, we, we get into like the degree of sexual intrusivity. Uh, if there was any force used, if the victim had any physical harm or to what degree the victim was harmed and the, the victim's vulnerability at the time, whether through not just age, but like developmental level, or as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the dude that had sex with his girlfriend while she was unconscious, things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you were mentioning earlier, the stuff about the uh, paraphilias mm-hmm. and the sexual behavior inventory <clears throat> helps us get a beat on that. And so it's the, basically it's a junk list of sexual behaviors, some legal, some illegal, um, but ultimately like might not be Some the beagle yeah, that, so, and a legal beagle, if you will. <laughs> well, I'm not legal Eagle. Yeah. Legal, legal beagle. beagle. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it, they go through this list of, again, some are paraphilias, some are not illegal at all. Uh, just, but th- things that might be an item of clinical attention, Hell, there's some things on there that are perfectly healthy, but again, items of clinical attention. And these are the types of things, but it's the dumbest thing in the world when your client fills a polygraph because they were embarrassed to admit that they, you know, used a sex toy or something. It's like, bro, right. you, you, you were holding on to that. Right. You weren't telling me. That. So it, it just kind of gives us an idea of what's but, going on with this guy. But see, the reason why they would fail on that is be, and this is what people need to understand why that's important is because if they go into their, thinking that they're being dishonest, right? Like, and, and some of the questions with how they're worded, um, I mean, you know, we're not polygraphers, but with some of the questions with how they're worded, I think the client not having disclosed that they can kind of second guess themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I did, we do not want them doing that in the right. chair. I didn't, I, I didn't disclose that I used, you know, some sort of set, whatever, you know, fill in the blank on the sex toy, but um, I didn't disclose that. And so now I'm second guessing myself. Right. And, and I, and I know I didn't t- tell them that. So I was kind of dishonest because I didn't do, you know, is there anything else you want to tell me? And maybe he did want to tell me. And then he didn't tell me, you know, so now he knows he didn't give information and he knows that going in there, that's going to show up on a polygraph for sure. You know? You, yeah. So you didn't lie specifically so about, avoidable. you didn't lie specifically about like an undetected victim, but you, you were, you withheld or you omitted information that otherwise could have, you know, gone into something that like that. And we need to pay attention to those things. Right. Exactly. So just, we, we get, again, the idea here is to send your client in as prepared as possible. Uh, and we give some instructions to the client. This is right on the packet. We hand them basically like if they were taking like finals almost, that's kind of what this is. Yeah. We tell them to take the sexual history packet with them, whether or not that gets used in the polygraph, who knows, but it helps the client feel prepared. We tell them, be well rested, eat, drink, you know, don't do anything funky with your prescriptions. Just take what you take. You don't have to manipulate it. Don't pop a Xanax unless you're prescribed Xanax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dress casually. You have to sit still. So, Not too casually. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess there's <laughs> limits on that. Yeah. <laughs> dress in a way that you feel like you could sit perfectly still for a while. There you go. Yeah. Don't walk uh, in with your Tommy Johns. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it might seem obvious, but give yourself plenty of time to take it. You don't want to be 
tripping about making it to work on time because he didn't schedule enough time. And then look, everybody knows about antipolygraph.org. So look, just <laughs> drop it. Don't go there. It's yeah. Silly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really the, the, the type of polygraphs that guy's discussing and talking about on there are pretty rinky dink polygraphs. Like anyway, 1986 polygraphs. Yeah. 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 Like blood pre-employment cuts. polygraphs and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. That guy's funny. Um, so some pro tips, these are, these are things that I, you know, um, I don't know if we're pros, but these are things that I think we always tell our clinicians is don't ever send a client to a polygraph examination. You think they're going to fail. Like I just tell a clinician, if the, if you do that, you're, you're a little bit of a coward. Like you, why would you do that? Because you think he's being dishonest, right? Tell your client, you think he's not being honest, right? Just say, Hey, I think you're being dishonest. You don't need, because a failed polygraph complicates all kinds of things. Like it sends a message to other people involved in his care and his community reintegration that could think differently about that. And it also sends the wrong message to him, almost like you set him up or her, like, you know what I mean? So never, ever do that. And I've been, I mean, if you think they're going to fail, don't send them in there. Have a discussion till you feel good about it as, as well. Um, the other thing is remain objective about the results. Like this is not a, I don't know why sometimes client like therapists get mad about this and they almost get mad at the polygrapher too about the results. You I've know? noticed that, right? It, this is not a, a, I mean, this happens. Okay. It's just like, as if somebody came up with a, a, a positive UA, this does not indicate a failing on part of you or the client. Like you did not do anything wrong and you know, and, and, uh, it just is an indicator that you need to adjust treatment a little bit to account for how, how are we going to do this the next time? Right? right. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with anything you did or did not do. And it certainly is not an opportunity to bitch and moan at the poly- polygraph examiner. Like they are just, you know, interpreting results. That's mm-hmm. all they're doing. Um, spend adequate time reviewing the sexual history preparation beforehand. Like Jeff has discussed, like you should be spending some time with that client, like not, Hey, here's your packet. When you're done, go see the police. No, 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 no. They should feel confident based on the discussion with you. And that takes time. That takes energy. That takes effort. So you should start talking about this early on and often. Um, and look, allow them. I would tell them, Hey, if you're not ready, just tell me and we'll move on without the threat of sanction. Like you de- so if you're not ready, just tell me you're not ready. Not not that you're being dishonest or that you're lying to me. Just tell me you're not ready. I don't know why you're not ready. If athletes foot that morning, okay, I don't, I don't know why you're not ready, but you just tell me you're not ready and I, and that's okay. I'm not going to send you That's in a there. non-threatening way to help them do whatever they've got, whatever gymnastics they got to do in their head to get, build the confidence. To right. Tell you. Right. Don't, don't tell me you're being dishonest to me because you know, I, I acknowledge that, that sitting in their position, there's a lot of reasons to be dishonest to Dude, me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not, and I, and I don't take that personally. That's <laughs> I'd lie to me you. too. Have you seen yeah. me? Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Last reunification review. Yeah. Just from the top, <sighs> Molly already talked about uh, most of this stuff. So just Molly, uh, what Molly already talked about this. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm saying what I'm gonna say tomorrow. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say Molly is no, yeah, in here. Molly. Yeah. yeah. I was, were you referring to ecstasy? Yeah. I, get, I gotta give Molly some credit. Yeah, there she's you doing go. the first yeah. part of this. So Molly Prince, by the way. Molly Prince. Yeah. Shout out to Molly Prince That's and right. circle treatment. That's right. So first and foremost, adult probation and parole has to give us the green light when it comes to reunification. Do not do this as a unilateral decision. We need to collaborate with APMP and keep them apprised every step of the way to keep making sure that we have that green light. Uh, 
time in treatment. Okay. For non-victims, at least 180 days need to go by, like for them to, you know, be able to potentially go to Thanksgiving with their cousin, non-victim. Um, 180 days is a magic number because that's two full quarters worth of treatment and the observation too. It, yeah. It's it. Yeah. Two full quarters of observation. It's 180 days of being able to see who this guy is and what he's about or gal. And also uh, the program parameters state that the polygraph, this polygraph needs to be done within that first 180 days. Yep. Uh, we need to have some measure of sexual interest again, able plethysmograph, something that we can use to have another collateral source of information. Hopefully not the plethys. Hopefully not. Yes. <laughs> the plethys. Can I do a plethys? <laughs> Got to do a plethys later. Oh my God. Dork. Yeah. Um, they have to have an approved supervisor. They have to be permission letters signed by the legal guardians. I, I, I don't know if we mandated this yet, but I have my clients get it notarized. I don't need somebody just faking a signature. And I, like, for me, I like getting the notary on there. Uh, and then an activity request. like this. So the activity request form, we're, we're using that as a safety plan. And again, this is for non-victims. It, for, for victims, it's all of these things except for it happens at the very end of treatment. All the stuff Molly said about collaborating with a victim therapist. But this is the bare minimum standard for non-victims. Anyway, yeah. appreciate you guys and get the hell out of this office. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you say yeah, at the yeah, end yeah. Of it. yeah well no that was a long one but that one's a good one um i mean yeah if you didn't know how to do a pause that's almost two hours right there Jeez. Boy, yeah we got 90 minutes uh oh well easily <laughs> yeah. easily and we we're still speeding we'll, through that that's true we'll cruise we'll, we'll cruise, cruise. we'll yeah. be fine we were bullshitting with each other a little bit yeah it's not a bad thing so yeah pretty good polygraph uh, polygraph pretty good uh podcast for anybody who's that hasn't done one of those and want to listen to you know how to go through some we of should those post this as a training on the on workspace yeah we could probably do that too yeah that'd be helpful um yeah i think yeah for, uh, you for know this, as i've had this conversation with therapists on an individual for level the april training yeah that's what we should do okay well uh anything more we want to say on this <laughs> they've been listening long enough okay here see you folks have a good one does it for this episode of the gorilla social work podcast if you like what you hear feel free to stop by the five star radiance home and put food coloring in their clothes iron you can find us on apple podcasts spotify youtube or wherever you listen to podcasts please help us grow by giving us a five star rating and sharing with a friend we'd like to stay in chat longer but we're lying good night <laughs>